0: You are listening to Pastor Mike Greiner of Harvest Community Church in Kittanning, Pennsylvania. We pray that you will be challenged today as you listen to a sermon entitled, Make Room for Truth, based on 1 Timothy 2, verses 8-10, through 10, recorded on Sunday, November 13, 2016. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org. Let's join Pastor Mike as he preaches. When Paul writes the letter to Timothy, he doesn't tell him why he's writing it till the third chapter. Now, the, the, the letter when he wrote it didn't have chapter numbers in it. Those are added later. He just wrote it. But the purpose, <clears throat> excuse me, for writing the letter to Timothy comes in chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, and it says this. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church church. Of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. He he is he's writing this letter because his travel plans are not what he wants them to be. He is frustrated, perhaps emotionally. I I get frustrated when I can't go where I want to go when I want to go there. And and he obviously intended to come and and meet with Timothy himself. Timothy, he's put in a pretty important position. He's he's um, to to really be the leadership trainer of the churches in Ephesus uh, to, to keep things orderly. And he wanted to be there personally to do hands-on training and teaching. And, and he says, but I can't, I'm delayed. I can't be there with you. So I wrote you this letter, which, which two things jumped to my mind. Number one is how did God use us our frustrating times? This is not a major point, but I know you are just like me. You have frustrating times in life where you can't do what you wanna do. You can't go where you wanna go. And you wonder, um, Uh, how this frustration fits in God's big picture. Well, sometimes if you could go where you want to go, it messes up what God wants to do. So here Paul was frustrated. He couldn't go where he wanted to go, perhaps because he was being harassed by the authorities, perhaps because he was in prison in Rome. Um, You know, has that ever happened to you? You you wanted to go where you wanted to go, but you couldn't make bail, so you didn't go. And, And because of that, he said, look, the the church in the church people need to know he says how to behave in the family of God and he wrote a letter we don't have this letter if he's there so uh, but the other part to note is that he thinks it's so important that this church understands how to behave because the church is the buttress of the truth and the pillar of the truth pillar being what holds up your, your structure. Buttress is also a, a strengthener of architecture. These are both building terms. And the church in the world is what holds up the truth. You're not going to find the truth held up anywhere else. Not the truth from God, except the church. But the behavior of the people in the church needs to be outlined. Um, apparently, how the people behave naturally was not sufficient. In other words, we're now Christians in Ephesus in the first century, and we're just going to do our thing. we're just going to be ourselves and express ourselves, and he goes, well, that's all well and good, but there's actually certain ways you should behave. To be a Christian is to be unique. To be a church is to be unique. It's distinctive. You can't just be like the world. You can't even just be like you definitely can't be like just like your culture. There are good things in your culture, good things you've learned from your family, and there are bad. And when it comes to the church, God is corrective. And that's why this letter is written. Now, our text for today, and it'll be our text next week and our text the following week, um, and you'll see why as that unfolds, is First Timothy 2, 8 to 10. And here's an area where we require instruction. They required instruction, and we do too. Um, so 8 to 10 goes like this. I desire that in every place men should pray. Now, we know he's talking to the church. So um, there's... Every direction of this text says he's, he's saying, when you gather as church, I'm desiring that men should pray. The word men can be used here uh, generically to mean men and women. In this case, it isn't. It's, it means actual males. Uh, I desire that men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, here's the contrast, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control not with braided hair or gold or curl or pearls or costly attire but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works now i'm not going to get into the details of those verses today because i want to pull back the lens and look a little wider here and, and, and note that there are different instructions here for men and women All right there are different instructions he says i want men to do this and i want women to do to do this and then from verse eight to fifteen he launches um, into discussion of uh mostly of women uh, and 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 how they are to relate in the church now for twenty centuries or nineteen and a half centuries, this was not remarkable nor uh, controversial today it 's both uh, to to distinguish between. Certain instructions for men and certain instructions for women. Everything you and I are taught in our culture, in our country, is that's wrong. You should not make those distinctions. Uh, There's this need to diminish or erase distinctions between male and female. You you know, we, 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 we need women... Uh, firemen, firepersons, firefighters, we need women, Marines, or, or, and we need men, to, and we need to get rid of these distinctions because they're sexist and they put one sex down and lift another sex up, and, and we can't have all that. And so here's Paul saying, I want women to do this, I want men to do this. As a new believer, uh, when I was a brand new Christian back in 1983, uh, I remember in that fall, I uh, was in a church, and I hadn't been a churchgoer for very long in my life, so it was a new experience, and I kind of liked it. I loved the Bible, loved reading the Bible. That's one way you know you have the Holy Spirit, is you really want to meet with God, and you know that Bible has something to do with that, and you just love it. So I love my Bible. I love to, to, to learn when, the, when they would teach, and I was in a class once but on a Sunday, and, and they were teaching, and, and, and I, I just was getting to know my Bible. I, I was a table of contents guy. You may be a table of contents contents guy or gal. That's okay. Don't be ashamed. Everyone has to start there. You know, the do, the pastors would get up and say something like, turn to first of something you've never heard of. Okay. And they all, the whole gang is like there, boom, they're there. I'm like, gosh, that's a big book. I'm in the table of contents. But that's cool. That's where I was. And that's a good place to be. So anyway, and one particular one, we were actually, I think in this text, or it was in a Corinthians text. I can't remember, but it'd have to be one of those two. And And I was reading what it said about women and their roles, and I realized that the church I was in was behaving differently. And so I raised my hand, and I said to the pastor, it says this here, and I was completely, I was not starting a fight, I wasn't smart enough, I was being very polite, and he realized that, and very kindly, he politely answered, and he says, I know it seems to say that women need to be in a certain leadership in this situation, but that's cultural. Back when the Bible was written, things were different, and, and that was a cultural issue then. Things are different now, and, and, and I heard that, and I said, okay, cool, I agreed, because he was the teacher, and I was not, and, and I was learning. I didn't know anything, so that was good enough for me. And then uh, not long after that, I was at a, an event, which was mostly for young people, and a guy named Tony Campola was teaching, and he came to that Ephesians text where it says, wives, submit to your husbands, and he pointed out to all of us young people that... Um, uh, that it says wives submit to your husbands, but before that it says you should submit to each other. So there, there is no such thing really as leadership in marriage like that. It's mutual submission. And I said, well, okay, he's a pretty fun and entertaining speaker, and he's funny, and I like him. So that must be how that works. So this was the teachings I was getting on male and female, and I just cruised along. Well, then as I started to grow in my faith, read the Bible for myself, sit under many teachers and pastors and listen to what they had to say, I began to realize that what these men had told me wasn't what the Bible was saying. Now, they're not enemies, they're Christians, but they're not telling me the truth. I realized that the Bible is actually very serious about when it says things about male and female. That God really takes those distinctions to heart. He invented them. That leadership between male and female in the home and the church, it really matters whether you're a man or a woman what roles you have to play and should play. And, and, and I found myself pulled more to churches that well, I think stuck straighter to the Bible here. And then off I went to seminary. In a good seminary, a good Bible-believing seminary, but I was still even there amazed from fellow students and some professors the unwillingness to touch the issue, any issue dealing with male and female. There's more important things we could be talking about, and they would just skirt it. And there would be people who believe all kinds of things, right? And I'd be like, oh, we, don't we have to talk about this? No. I became very frustrated. Um, very frustrated. In angst. Have you ever been in, over a doctrine of the Bible in angst? If you're not, you will be. If you're a Christian, you will be. There's going to be seasons that you'll be able to put on a calendar. And remember later, I was really struggling with this teaching. Uh, and that's okay, by the way. It's a good thing. I liken it too when when uh if you look back in the book of genesis you'll see a a time when you've got um jacob wrestling with god with the angel of god and um and and he wrestles him all night and the angel puts his hip out of joint and says there i win (laughs) but it's through that wrestling that that jacob's internal self was changed so you should wrestle and i was really frustrated that I thought the church is not dealing with this issue and a lot are sliding in the wrong direction. I can't tell you how how uh, relieved I was when I found a book, it was around 1995, called Recovering Biblical Manhood or Womanhood, which was edited by John Piper and Wayne Gruden, two guys I'd never heard of. Um, edited by, if you have a book that says edited by, it means they didn't write it. They do a chapter or two and other people write it, which I think is the, sounds like the easy way to write a book. I'd like to write a book like that. <laughs> write a chapter, the rest of you people do this, I edit. But in any case, um, finally, a a book is about that thick that just breaks down all the arguments that I'd heard and had been hearing regarding, because I looked for them, manhood and womanhood. And I determined then that it is very important, very important for church leaders to deal with the issue of male and female. Avoiding it is a problem. And I saw people avoid it, no matter which side of the fence they were on, because they didn't want to fight. But if you avoid something, it still moves forward. Well, then I first pastor it was at uh, First Baptist Church in Union, New Jersey. Now, even if you're a Baptist, you may not know much about what it means to be a Baptist. <laughs> um, it's your experience as a Baptist. Definitely, most people aren't Baptists, don't know how that works, but they're not monolithic. You'll talk to some guy and he'll say, I was in a Baptist church, Baptist church and you know what they're like. And I'll go, yeah, I know what they're like. <laughs> and he means one thing and I'll talk to someone else and say, well, I was in a Baptist church and you know what they're like. And I'll go, yeah, I know what they're like. And they mean a completely different thing. There's all kinds of Baptist denominations. Baptists do not have a hierarchy. They're all, and and and, and First Baptist Church of Union, New Jersey was in, an American Baptist. An American Baptist It was a Bible-believing church, but its denomination, the the people who, I guess, were the grand poobahs, pretty much slide on the Bible. And they still slide on the Bible. They're soft on the Bible. Um, So, I'm walking into a diner. if If you live in New Jersey, you go to diners. The food may be good, may not be good. Guaranteed to be cooked by Greeks. I don't know why. You don't believe me? Go to New Jersey. Every diner, owned by Greeks, run by Greeks. It's not like you get a bunch of gyros, or gyros, as you might call them. Um, in any case, I'm walking in a diner with a guy. I'm the new pastor. I'm 33, I'm a new pastor, and I'm with an older, seasoned pastor. And he's been nice to me. He's making friends with me, and I like that. So we're walking in, and this guy jumps up. He sees the guy I'm walking with, his pastor. He jumps up and says, hey, pastor, I want to ask you a question. And, and that's cool, you know. Um, so we stop, and he says... I was reading, and he pointed to this text in Timothy, and he said, you said that we do this and this in our Baptist church, but here it seems to say we're doing the wrong thing. What? And it was a very honest question. He asked it very kindly, and I flashed back to myself when I was a new Christian, and that pastor answered him the exact same answer I got. He said, I know it seems like that, but if you were to study the original culture and you were to learn what it says, you would realize that it doesn't mean what it seems to mean. Um, and we can talk about it later or something. And the guy said, okay. And he took it and he sat down. Now this time, the first time I heard that answer, I was like, that's cool. This time, I wasn't cool. I actually took out a business card and said, hey, if you want to talk to me about this, <laughs> which is probably rude, but I thought, I, I, don't, I don't know how to do this. Because I was a little... Peeved. Not lose your temper peeved, but this is wrong. Because the wrongness isn't over male or female. The wrongness is over the Bible. He just told a person from his church who read the text, saw the plain meaning of the text, and he saw it correctly. The reason you don't understand it is because you're not initiated. You're not smart enough. You know, Christians in the Reformation, that's the whole point that we were fighting against. The idea that God does not speak clearly through his Bible. So you have people who were who, who reading it plainly. They ask their teachers, why aren't you teaching what this says? And the teacher says, because I'm smarter than you. It's not good. I, I went to a big mucky-muck thing for the denomination and that they held in Wisconsin. And we spent a few days together together. Um, in, in what looked to be like a new age Jesus thing, I don't know. And and they started using strange language. It was catching my ear. They said, that We worship, we want to make sure we understand that we worship the God of Rebecca, Rachel, and Sarah. Or Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel. Or Sarah, you put them in order. Sarah and Abraham, Isaac, and Rebecca, Rachel, and Jacob. So it'd be Sarah, Rachel, Rebecca, and, and God is the God of Sarah, Rachel and Rebecca. He's also the God of Sally and Lucy and Mary and Jen and Billy Joe. I mean, but what they were doing was they were getting rid of the Old Testament formulaic language of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The reason they were doing this was because they consider that patriarchal. In other words, patriarchal from the word from Father. And they think patriarchal equals bad. So they're trying to change the language. There were even some there who didn't like Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's very patriarchal language, Father and Son, Holy Spirit. He's kind of cool. He's neuter. (laughs) But Father, Son, and they would change it to creator, sustainer, comforter. Well, that takes care of that. Gets all the gender out of it. This is, by the way, the book "The Shack." A lot of people said, "Oh, I love The Shack. It shows God is so nice." I needed a warm welcome. God, God, the Father was made into a woman. Oh, it's just artistic license. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. You you don't have the right to change God to a feminine when He call, tells you He's a masculine, because. You have father issues. I I have father issues. You have father issues. I have mother issues. You have mother issues. Who has perfect parents? My kids have father issues. I guarantee it. (laughs) I tell them, overlook this father. Look at that father. I'm doing my best here. But I don't have the right to change God's revelation of himself. So... As we come rushing into chapter two, very short chapter. There's about eight verses dealing with women. But instead of getting smaller, I want to go wider. I want to take the time it needs from our pulpit, stage, table, whatever the heck this is, where we bring the Word of God. And if it takes weeks, it takes weeks. Let's deal with it, let's move away to the other texts and look at them so we can talk about something that's very important in our culture. What does God say about male and female? Now, as we go forward, I just, I hope I telegraphed to you it's gonna be patient. Hopefully, it's also gonna be relevant, but I wanna give you a couple of ground rules that'll be guiding me. One, we're not ashamed of what the Bible says. It's good. God is good. Do you know why it's okay as a Christian to say to God, you can take everything from me? You can take my family, my home, All that I have, well, because he owns it anyhow, is one of the actions, but there's even a better answer, although that's only half the answer. The better half of that answer is every good thing I have comes from his goodness, and if I get him, I don't lose it anyway. Just lose it for a minute or two on this present time that you're on this floating piece of dust, but you get it forever forever. And God's ways are good. His definition of male and female isn't bad. It's nothing to be afraid of. It's, it's good. Embraced causes men and women to be happy. I've heard some say, well, I know what it says about men and women in there, and we're going to stick with it, even though I don't like some of the things Paul says. But we've got to go with it. It's like, oh, that's blasphemy. Because what you're saying is I don't like what God says, but I'm going to do it anyway. I like what God says. I don't always understand it. My brain's this, his is, well, I can't even do it with my arms. It's so big. Mine is tiny. But it's always good. Second, we understand that issues of gender are sensitive today. So we want to be equally sensitive and patient as we proceed. Not only do I not want to come across as someone who says, well, if you don't agree with this right this minute, you're horrible. I don't want you to either. (laughs) I don't want you to go back to your job and say, the pastor said, you're stupid. (laughs) Now, I agree with him. You are stupid. (laughs) Remember, we live in a culture filled with sinners like you and me. And until God brings us truth, we don't have it. So we have to be patient. It's okay. It's even okay if on some of these things you say, well, I don't know if you're right about that, Mike. i got to think about it. Fine, wrestle with the angel of God. I'm not going to hate you or kick you out of the church while you wrestle. And along those lines, I want to answer your questions. So if you have questions, you think he needs to answer these questions for me, you can write them on your Connect card, all right? Write them, take your Connect card out, write it, drop it in, into the bucket um, from all the campuses and I will answer the question if it's a good question. If you're just being a jerk, you know, and, you know, I'll try to pick up on that. Or if it's very personal and I need to talk to you or then I'll just talk to you. But if it's, it's something that applies to everyone, if I don't answer it in a sermon, I will have a time from the front when I read the question without your name and we'll just answer it. All right. So to begin with, today, the, the place to start is to let you know the ground on which harvest stands. Because the issue of male and female isn't new, and all the fights about it aren't new. So we, many years ago, adopted um, someone else's statement as our position on gender. Back in 1987, in Danvers, Massachusetts, no, I don't know where it is either. None of us do. Nobody's really even sure it exists, but we're going to assume it did. A newly formed group called the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood came up with a statement of what they would call rationale and affirmations on biblical manhood and womanhood. The rationale statements are, this is what, why we are saying this, the affirmations, what we believe. It was in 1987, it's a little dated, but still it, I think it works. So the Danvers Statement was constructed in December 87 by the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, which has on the, the home on the internet of cbmw.org. I made sure that cbmw.org is on your map so you will have it. It is a terrific resource. It's a clearinghouse of books, blogs, articles, teachings. It's a great resource. I was happy when I found it in the late 90s. I'm happy it's still there today. So there it is. Check it out for yourself. What I'm going to do is actually read this document. There's a couple of fill-ins, but whether you fill it in or not, in your actual bulletin, you have the whole thing. And it is important that you know that your leaders are confronting and have confronted and have a place that they stand. And here it is. If you've taken the membership class, you should have gone over this. You may or may not remember that because you go over a lot of things. But here it is. So the rationale. Are you going to read this? Yes, I'm going to read this. Because it's important. This is the stand of your church or the church you're visiting and thinking about joining or not. We have been moved in our purpose by the following contemporary developments which we observe with deep concern. Contemporary in 1987, (laughs) their concern was justified. Things have not gotten better. The widespread uncertainty and confusion in our culture regarding the complementary differences between masculinity and femininity. Has that confusion between masculine and feminine gone up or down? It's only gotten worse. The tragic effects of this confusion in unraveling the fabric of marriage woven by God out of the beautiful and diverse strands of manhood and womanhood. I think in 1987, it, I would have been shocked if they could have imagined how far that issue of marriage would go, and that quickly. Three, the increasing promotion given to feminist egalitarianism. You may not be used to the word egalitarianism. It just, it, it, it's, it's a term used to say the position or philosophical camp that says men and women need to be made as androgynous. That means one sex that combines both. As same as possible. Everything equal. Everything. Um, Everything the same. With accompanying distortions or neglect of the glad harmony portrayed in scripture between loving, humble leadership of redeemed husbands and the intelligent, willing support of that leadership by redeemed wives. Redeemed is an important word here. We, We want to talk about how to behave in the household of God. We don't want to go out in the world and condemn everything we see. You can have, the blinders are taken from your eyes and you can see the sin you used to bathe in, dance in. And now you realize it's sin and you give it up. But then don't go back out there to those people who are doing the same things you used to do and act like you're smart and they're stupid. Until they know Christ, they're not going to get it right. We're concerned first with the household of God. Uh, By the ambivalence, Regarding the values of motherhood, vocational homemaking, and the many ministries historically performed by women, there's a lot to go in there. We're not going to go, but I agree. To be a mother is to be ashamed. So what do you do, dear? I add to the population people who suck resources and pollute. Oh, so you don't have a real job. That's, that's what they're talking about, the ambivalence towards motherhood. Um, and and other things. Let's move on. Five, the growing claims of legitimacy for sexual relationships, which have biblically and historically been considered illicit or perverse. We've seen that. And the increase in pornographic portrayal of human sexuality. If only they knew in 87 what was coming. Just to remind you who are old enough to remember 1987, especially those who maybe were born after 1987 and don't know, um, you didn't have a personal computer in 1987. You didn't download anything on your phone. You just picked it up You press the buttons, you might even have turned the dials. You used it only for talking to other humans. If you had a computer, it was a 286. And boy, that was the latest thing. And if you don't know what that is, pornography is going through the roof. Young boys have access to nudity that centuries never ever had. Never had. And uh, things are, it's not good. It's, it's bad. Six, the upsurge of physical and emotional abuse in the family. That's always been in all ages. I think it continues. The emergence of roles for men and women in the church leadership that do not conform to biblical teaching but backfire in the crippling of biblically faithful witness. What that means is because people are cowards, they sell out and act like the world inside the church. And instead of bravely displaying what God's order is, they're ashamed of God's order harvest sometimes I'll, I'll just point out that all the elders are men and people will go oh, why are you gonna say that why do we do that well if we don't put ourselves in that uncomfortable position we can never have the conversation of why um, the increasing in and preval, prevalence of a, an acceptance of hermeneutical oddities I know that's probably not a term you use much hermeneutical oddities Devised to reinterpret apparently plain meanings of biblical text. What that means is what I was telling you about in the diner and me in the church. Hermeneutical is a fancy word for how you interpret the Bible. Your rules you use to interpret the Bible. So you have regular Christians reading it and interpreting it normally. And their pastors interpret it normally. But when they come to texts on male and female, all of a sudden they have a new set of rules. That's a hermeneutical oddity. Nine. The consequent threat to biblical authority as the clarity of Scripture is jeopardized and the accessibility of its meaning to ordinary people is withdrawn into the restricted realm of technical ingenuity. Fancy way of saying what that pastor did in that diner. And he told his own guy, you can't understand the Bible because you don't know enough. Ten, and behind all this apparent accommodation of some within the church to the spirit of the age at the expense of winsome Radical biblical authenticity, which in the power of the Holy Spirit may reform rather than reflect our ailing culture. God's way is good and true. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and they are saved. Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Well, if you leave that which is ravaging your world, right, and you run into the church and find the same thing, you won't have any relief. Okay, so here are the affirmations. This is that was the why, this is the what. Number one, both Adam and Eve were created in God's image, equal before God as persons, distinct in their manhood and womanhood. There's where the equality comes in, the equality of value, equality of personhood. No man can say he's better than a woman, or a woman is better than a man. Both reflect the image of God. Two, distinctions in masculine and feminine roles are ordained by God as part of the created order. And they find their echo in every human heart. Men are men, women are women, because God made them that way. That's the point. Three, Adam's headship in marriage was established by God before the fall, not as a result of sin. This is in response to an argument that we'll hit when we get to it. That says the only reason he's the head is because of sin. Sin made him a brute. It sure did. But he wasn't in charge before that. It's not true. Headship was there, but he wasn't a brute. Everyone's had a good leader and a bad leader. Four, the fall introduced distortions into the relationship between men and women. Number four and number six are very similar. So jump to six. Redemption in Christ aims at removing the distortions introduced by the curse. In both of them, what they're going to point out, I'm not going to read all that, you can read it yourself, is that husbands either go, and leaders either go from being bullies and, and dictators to being sissies and wimps who won't lead. And every one of you has a man. No, he's, he's, he can be one or the other on any given day. Nobody's perfect. But he generally tends, hopefully, to neither. And he, and he tries to find the right ground. Women, likewise, can either be... Usurping everything the man does. He's, he's an idiot. Nothing he does is right, of course. And he needs me to teach him. He needs me to be his, apparently his mother and his teacher, as well as his wife. Or they go the other way and they say, hi, I'm the doormat. Step on me. Clean your feet. What am I? I'm an idiot. And neither of those are good. And that's what's being said, and both in the home and the church. So that's four and six. I know I took them out of order. Let's go to five. The Old Testament, as well as the New Testament manifest the equally high value and dignity which God attached to the roles of both men and women. This is, both Old and New Testaments also affirm the principle of male headship in the family and in the covenant community. The point is that in the two realms we speak of, the home and the church, we're not speaking of everything. The Old Testament and New Testament are consistent. So i well, the Old Testament, everything was mean. God was mean. And in the New Testament, he, he, he cheered up. He got some Prozac or something. And that's not right. It's the same God in both both spheres. <laughs> Jumping down to number seven. In all of life, Christ is the supreme authority and guide for men and women. So that no earthly submission, domestic, religious, or civil, ever implies a mandate to follow human authority into sin. In other words, no one can say, well, because I'm the leader, you've got to do what I say. Submit to me, woman. And And this is put in because sometimes... <laughs> People will, a wife will say, well, I went along with cheating on the taxes because he told me to. No, no, you have a higher authority. You can never sin and blame the person over you. I went along with porn in our bedroom because he told me to. No, God said, don't. You go to God first. (laughs) Nine, with a half of the world's population outside the reach of indigenous evangelism. Oh, excuse me, did I skip one? Yes. Eight, in both men and women, a heartfelt sense of the call to ministry should never be used to set aside biblical criteria for biblical, for particular ministries. This is because many women, and I've heard this argument directly in conversation many times, will say, Well, I'm called by God to be a pastor. I'm gifted by God to be a pastor. I won't let any men or any structures of man stop me from doing what God has called. They're playing a trump card. God told me to do it. Well, if God told you to do it, it's always a trump card. I don't care what it is, right? If he said paint the bottom of your feet red, why are you doing that? God told me, well, you should do that. But the difficulty with that is it's subjective. It may be a heartfelt sense that you're supposed to do that. But you can have a heartfelt sense about a lot of things. I heard in a sermon recently that the great preacher George Whitfield, if I'm getting the the quote right, um, was told that God called him to have his, that told him personally that his son would be a, a greater preacher than he was. His son died before he reached 18 years old. Does that mean George Wiffle was a bad man? No. He he corrected himself. He goes, I thought, I thought God said that. <laughs> so you can't, you can't say, well, the Bible says you can't do this, but God called me. You don't trump the Bible. Rather, biblical teaching should remain the authority and testing for our subjective discernment of God's will. Number nine, with ha- half the world's population outside of the reach of indigenous evangelism with countless other lost people in, other, in those societies that have heard the gospel with the stresses and miseries of Sickness, malnutrition, homelessness, illiteracy, ignorance, aging, addiction, crime, incarceration, neurosis, loneliness. No man or woman who feels a passion from God to make His grace known in a word or deed need ever live without a fulfilling ministry. People say, well, I'm ripped off. You won't let me be the pastor. A woman might say, because I'm a woman. Uh, You won't let me shepherd the men. You won't let me... So you're not going to live a fulfilling ministry. Can I point out something that you might not catch, I say the same thing to 95% of the men. Just on different grounds. <laughs> it's not your call. <laughs> you're not, you have other calls. But I don't say you're irrelevant. You know, I guess God doesn't need you. So why would you think I'm saying that to you? We all are called to different things. We're convinced that the denial or neglect of these principles will lead to increasingly destructive consequences in our family, our churches. And the culture at large. And we ha- I have seen that in my lifetime. I think you'll continue to see it locally. Unless you embrace what God says without fear. Which means you have to learn it. So let's turn uh, the end of this sermon to perhaps the most important text on the issue. First Genesis 1, 27 and 28. And look at that for a moment in a devotional way. Genesis 1, 27 and 28 says this. So God created man in his own image. So he did that. (laughs) So God did it. In the image of God, he created him. He's not like any other creature on the earth, not like the earth, not like the stars. This is different. It's better. It's more valuable. And when he created him in his image, look, male and female. Male and female, his image. It's not male and male, not female and female. It's male and female. And there's a unique way that they together in their shared humanity reflect the image of God. And there's a unique way that apart, in a very feminine way for the woman, a very masculine way for the man, they also reflect the image of God. You take one away, you have an incomplete picture of what God wanted to show us. This is a corrective to the demonic thinking that's hurting our culture that says gender is a spectrum. There's not male. There's not female. You're somewhere on the spectrum between the two. It's, the lie is so pervasive it's even in a, in a light beer commercial now. But it's a satanic teaching. Is not true. It's just not true. You're male or you're female. And that's to be embraced because you're reflecting God. Women, be happy you're not a man. Be happy you're not a man. Because you know all the ways that your womanhood is different. You can feel it. Well, that's a good thing. Men, be happy you're not a woman. You know there's things about masculinity that you enjoy. Not because you chose to. It's because this is a way you're made. And be happy that the other one is like the other one. (laughs) God... Bless them. And he said to them, be fruitful, multiply. Fill the earth with other little males and females. And then he said, subdue it. He, there's authority of man over woman in, in, in the Bible, but there's also authority of man and woman over everything else. How the world gets that wrong, huh? We're killing babies but saving the earth. Right? I don't do Earth Day. I know that may insult you. I am against dirty water. I'm against dirty air. Don't worry. I'm not a polluter. Everything's so political these days. You can't. Uh, save the babies on the Earth Day. I'm um, for that day. Save the souls of the lost on the Earth Day. I'm um, for that day. If they call it keep the Earth clean so that it's a better home for humans day, I'd be for that day. But that's not where they're going. They're going, you evolve, the Earth is more valuable than you. In fact, you're kind of the enemy here. That's not what God says. He says, you have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Treat them well, but they're yours. You see, you reflect God in maleness and femaleness. That means, listen, your God is Trinity. Your God has been communicating and living in what what Wayne Grudem calls harmonious interpersonal relationship because theologians always make beautiful things sound technical, (laughs) But it's right for eternity. What is older than the earth? What is older than the universe? Love and communication. Love and communication are older than the universe. You can do them in the most intimate of relationships because you are a man or a woman. And that's God's design to reflect him in some way. redemption fall the fall was on man adam the head it's the sin of adam he say, well she ate the fruit quit your whining big boy you were in charge it's on you doesn't seem fair suck it up cupcake Redemption came from the body of a woman. It doesn't make her superior nor inferior. It's the magic. It's the beauty that God invented. Mary had no human help in conceiving. And by virtue of no man being in the mix, no sin was passed to the baby. Because apparently, it's the man who passes on the sin. Many of you women are saying, I knew it! <laughs> from now on, when that kid acts up into you! <laughs> but woman needed to be redeemed just as much. But Jesus came from the body of a woman. I'll put enmity between you and the snake, Eve, but when you're going to have a kid that's going to crush his head, the head crusher of Satan is Jesus, the Son of the living God. He is called the Son of God the Father. That is masculine language. It is not negotiable. There are many so-called Christians teaching that is negotiable. He could have been a woman. No, he couldn't have been. Why? Because if he could have been, he would have been. He wasn't. Because he calls himself the Son of the Father. And in that sense, masculine matters in some way that we don't understand. We don't have the right to meddle. We don't have the right to say, this doesn't conform to our value system. Patriarchalism is bad. We need to diminish male and female. Well, instead of diminishing masculine and feminine, we should expand our view. Paul does, Ephesians 5.31, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. The declaration of what marriage is. A man and a woman. There is no such thing as gay marriage. It may be called that. You can call your dog a unicorn. You can convince everyone. You can pass legislation. My dog's a unicorn. You can throw people in jail. Take away their tax-exempt status. Fine them. If they won't call your dog a unicorn, it's still a dog. So, gay marriage just doesn't exist. It's not a thing. It's just just not a thing. God put man and woman together. Why is that so important to God? He's so patriarchal. He tells you why. This mystery is profound. You're messing with deep magic when you mess with male and female. You see, there's this image, I think, that the feminist Christian, and I don't think those words should ever go together. And I mean that. I'm not being pejorative. I'm serious. I'm being intellectually consistent. I don't think those words should go together. The feminist Christian paints a picture of a trajectory where male and female cease to matter more and more until the Lord returns, and then they're nothing at all. Because we're not going to be married in the eternal state. She's right. I'm not going to be married in the eternal state. At least not to my wife, which is a bit of a disappointment. But I'll have that friendship probably deeper. I can't imagine what it'll be like. I don't know. But if you think that diminishes male and female, masculine and feminine, you're not reading the Bible. Because Paul says, this mystery is profound. I'm saying it refers to Christ in the church. As C.S. Lewis put it, one of the ends for which sex was created was to symbolize to us the hidden things of God. One of the functions of human marriage is to express the nature of the union between Christ and the church. We have, says Lewis, no authority to take the living and semitive figures which God has painted on the canvas of our nature and shift them about as if they were geometrical Figures. He goes on, For we are dealing with male and female, not merely as facts of nature, but as they live as the live and awful shadows of realities, utterly beyond our direct knowledge. You see, we wrongly assume that when Jesus returned, all this business of masculine and feminine is going to be erased. We couldn't be more wrong. Allow me to say something that is true and beautiful, taken out of context and misused is going to sound to our culture is not, but here it is. Patriarchal leadership and feminine beauty are eternal realities in which you will exist forever. The desire for women to be beautiful is feminine. It's going to be there forever. Patriarchal masculine leadership is the world in which you will live forever. Because the picture God gives us is he sends his son And we're all the feminine in a collective sense, not a physical sense. We are the bride, and we're a disgusting bride. We are just one of the syllables that Santa repeats. (laughs) You'll catch up to that later. That's what the Bible says. We're adulterers. We run off. We don't love our God. He sends the groom who, without sin, Jesus goes to a cross for the purpose of rescuing and washing her. Making her beautiful so he can present her to himself without spot or wrinkle. That language from Ephesians 5 is the language of a wedding. The eternity begins with a marriage supper. Do you think masculine and feminine are going to diminish? The responsive church responds to the beauty which she has gotten from her. Savior, who revealed in the masculine. Jesus values every man, woman, boy, and girl in this world equally. He gave his life lovingly so that every man, woman, boy, and girl could be saved. If you're not saved yet, man, woman, boy, or girl, you need to put your faith in Christ who died for you. But to molest God's definition of male and female, to mess with them, to try to move them around, is the height of unholiness. It's not just something you're allowed to do. It is unholy. It strikes at the core of who God reveals himself to be. And I don't I'm not getting all worked up cuz the world does it. I expect it. I'm getting all worked up cuz the church does it. You have no right. You're messing with things bigger than you understand. God revealed himself as he wants to be revealed. It's good. You don't have to fix it. There is no abuse in it. There's no dimination of women in it. This is, we trust that the word of God on man and woman is good. We cannot deviate. We must stand. So, as you can see, we're in for a heck of a ride. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Harvest Community Church we invite you to join us at any one of our four campuses located in Catanning, Petrolia Valley, Indiana, and Freeport. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org.